If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you would feel so gracious to join me in the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23 is something I know that you are familiar with. It is universally accepted, the 23rd Psalm. Communicated in the 23rd Psalm is the reality that we are in effect surrounded by God's presence. It's true, He's beside me, He is my shepherd, He's beneath me, He's the green pastures, He's near me, the still waters, He's ahead of me on the paths of righteousness, within me, for me, around me, upon me, above me, behind me, and in the sixth verse, we have this awareness, He has gone before us as well. In the 6th verse of the 23rd Psalm, and I just want to read that, and we'll kind of be around and throughout Scripture this morning. Here's what we read. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's good for us to just pause and reflect on that reality. No matter what we are engaged in, the goodness of God and the mercy of God are following us. They're following up behind us. But then this phrase is where I want to focus our study this morning. The psalmist says, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will abide in the house of the Lord. I will continue in the house of the Lord. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord, that's an interesting phrase. The place where God's presence is centered among His people. The house of the Lord. The very last word of that verse, forever, allows us to know that the psalmist is talking about heaven. We can live with the knowledge that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You say, well, that doesn't impact my life now. Contrary to that thought, Spurgeon said this of that verse. While I am here, I will be a child at home with my God. The whole world shall be his house to me. And when I ascend to the upper chamber, I shall not change my company nor even change the house. I shall only go to dwell in the upper story of the house of the Lord forever. Then he says this, it's somewhat prayerful. May God grant us grace to dwell in the serene atmosphere of this most blessed psalm. May God grant us that we dwell in the serene atmosphere that is created by the reality that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We don't think about this enough. I believe that we happen to be in a moment in time where eternity is at the forefront of our minds. Is prominent in our thinking. Yet at the same time, I would say we do not meditate enough on what the future holds for us as believers, and that is a weakness. On the eve before the crucifixion, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. It is evident to Jesus, it's evident to all readers, that the hearts of the disciples are grieving. They are sensing some anxiety. They are feeling troubled. Jesus looks at the disciples and in a very practical way, he speaks to them. These are familiar verses in John 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. 
Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And then know what Jesus says. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus took the prospect of heaven out of the stratosphere where we can't really grasp or understand it, and he brought it right down and placed it in our laps as a comfort. He intentionally comforted the troubled disciples by reminding them that his father's house is a very real place and one day, someday, we will be there with him. On the cross, Jesus said to the thief, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How many of you would enjoy a vacation to paradise? Yes. This time of year comes around, the grass goes brown, the trees become bare, rains all the time, a little bit cloudy, a little bit cold, and you're thinking, I would love to go away and have a paradise kind of vacation for two weeks. And, and we're all too poor to do that, which is why we're here right now. I understand. But Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross. And by his own description, Jesus who cannot lie, Jesus who is never hyperbolic in his speech in any way, shape, or form, says to the thief on the cross who has confronted both his sin and is now enduring the consequences of his sinful life, bearing up under excruciating pain, living out the reality of human anguish, Jesus says, strengthen yourself with this reality. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This agony, this excruciating existence will cease and you will be with me in paradise. Do you often think of heaven in the terms that Jesus described it? The old hymn writer wrote this, how beautiful heaven must be. And I say to you, it must be overwhelmingly beautiful. The the great heroes of the faith, were strengthened, they were motivated by this thought. Hebrews chapter 11 says this in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them. Note this phrase, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, If they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had the opportunity to have returned, but now they desire a better country that is unheavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. The great heroes of the faith were motivated by the reality of the Father's house. They held on to, they embraced the truth of that which is to come, heaven and a heavenly home. Jesus described it literally as paradise. We must develop a longing for home. A longing for a home that we have not yet seen throughout the history of the church. The people of God, that is the church of Jesus Christ, has rightly been preoccupied with heaven. They have longed for it 
because they deemed themselves only renters, strangers, pilgrims, temporary journeyists on this earth. In the 13th verse I read a moment ago, strangers and pilgrims, that's how they viewed themselves. In the 16th verse, they had a desire, an internal desire for a better country that is unheavenly. They were waiting for a city whose builder and maker was God. They were motivated by that which is to come. Sadly, this motivation is lost on us. This is no longer the case. One writer said this, We're caught up in society and it's mad rush for instant gratification, material comfort narcissistic indulgence the church has become worldly instead of otherworldly we're motivated too much by what exists here we're controlled too much by what we can see we are not preoccupied strengthened by motivated by that which is to come and yet the bible makes it clear we should be In Philippians 3.20, the Apostle Paul said, our conversation, that is our citizenship, it is in heaven. It is not of this place. He was writing to the believers at Colossae. He says this to them in Colossians 3. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Our affections, our thoughts should always be on that which is yet to come, not only on the here and now. We should be thinking of heaven. If I think of heaven, it makes me confront my mortality. I don't want to think about death or dying. You don't have to think about death or dying to acknowledge where you're going. Do you realize that heaven is referenced more than 500 times in Scripture? 50 times in the book of Revelation alone. The truth is the average Christian thinks of heaven as someplace out there someday where I will go and I will sing for all eternity. That is not the most exciting thought for me. So you're telling me heaven is an eternal choir practice. If I'm honest, that sounds like the other place. (laughs) That does not sound like heaven for me. You say, if given a choice of an eternal choir practice or the other place, eternal choir practice. I'm not dumb. I think we misunderstand what it is that is out there for us. The scripture helps us. Listen, it's not something that someday we might understand a little better. It is an actual place. And the Bible wants us and God wants us and Jesus strove for us to understand there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A new city, a city whose builder and maker is God. It's an actual place. It is a destination that we are journeying towards even here and now. We're pilgrims. We're strangers making our way to our eternal home, our Father's house. So I need to see it. I want to understand it. John, as he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos... God gives him a heavenly vision. John has seen it. And he tries to the best of his human ability, knowing our finite minds, the Holy Spirit inspires him. And John tries to tell us what it's like. But I want you to just focus in on something that John says in the first verse of Revelation 21.1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw it, John says. It's real 
It's actual. I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. It's coming. It's out there. It's real. It's a destination that we are journeying towards. I can put the argument out to you that the early church was preoccupied with it rightly. The heroes of the faith were strengthened by it, motivated by it. It's a real place. We need to develop a longing for home, and it's a new home. How many of you like new things? Yeah, I love new things. You say, are you materialistic? Probably a little bit. But if given the option, I like new things better than most old things. You want a new suit? Sure. You want a new car? Yeah. Want a new house? Sure. Does it cost me more? This one's free. You like new things? I like new things. A new home. Here's what John says in the fourth verse of Revelation 21. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Oftentimes I'll use the 21st chapter of Revelation when I'm at a funeral. Trying to encourage people who are grieving. But I understand this passage of scripture is not only for the grieving. It's also for the happily navigating life living. And in Revelation 21, John is trying to help us wrap our arms around a new home that is coming for us. And he says very specifically, God shall wipe away tears from their eyes. Do you comprehend that in heaven, God is going to wipe out disappointment? He's going to wipe away tears. He's going to wipe out sadness. Not one tear will fall. The Greek language in that verse, and I won't bore you with it, emphasizes the reason he can wipe away all tears for all time is because the context of sadness and pain is forever gone. There are no more tears of misfortune. There is no more lost love. There are no more tears of remorse or of guilt or of regret. Sadness, all of its context, has been wiped away. He will wipe out disappointment. This is the new home that we are heading toward. This is the place that we are on a journey after. And he says, not only will I wipe tears away, there will be no more death in that place. That is a comforting thought. I know that oftentimes we all stop and we say, well, the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Which only means that every single one of us in here and everyone that is listening online is going to to experience death. And death comes in a myriad of shapes and sizes, does it not? All different hues. I mean, we don't know how we're checking out, but we're checking out. Someday, I'm going to die. I don't want to meditate on it. I'd like to think that it just happens while I'm asleep. That's what I'd like to think. Healthy, fit, asleep, just don't wake up. I wake up and I'm in my heavenly celestial bed I swing the covers and I step out and you say, is that happening in heaven? I'm going to totally destroy all of that mental image in the rest of this message. But I want to just wake up in heaven. You might have a gruesome death. Let's be honest. You might. I mean, it could be a terrible, prolonged, disease-ridden. I mean, I don't know. What I do know is we're all going there. Here's the reality of what we're heading towards. In the place that God is preparing for us, there is no more death. 
We don't even resent saying goodbye because of the anxiety that that brings. There's no more death when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. The first intruder was death. For the wages of sin is death. For by one man who sinned, death entered all of history. Yet by Jesus who was righteous, he eradicates death and gives eternal life. Do you comprehend that in our Father's house, there is no more death? This has vast implications. One writer, I love how he said it. He said that there will be no death even to the very cellular structure of our bodies. Not even one cell will die. There is nothing of death in his new creation. You will never feel fatigued. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Never fatigued. Your eyes will never dim. Your ears will never lessen their capacity to hear. Your hair will stay with you forever. You will never feel fatigue. Nothing of our bodies will ever need replenishing. We speak of it as eternal rest and in a true capacity. We can't even comprehend what actual rest feels like. No cellular death whatsoever. Not like a retirement home. Actual rest. Heaven is an ongoing, never-ending, never-dying, even at the molecular level of life. As active as God commands us to be, we'll never experience wear and tear. No weakness. No disease. No decay. How many of you enjoy going to the dentist? When you love it. Just love it. No cavities in heaven. Because nothing will die. Not one single cell. The coffin and the funeral and the grave will be ancient relics of the forgotten past. The only death that we'll encounter in our consciousness at all is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross which enabled us to be there in the place where death no longer has any entrance. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. He says this, does John. As I looked, the angel of the Lord told me there would be no sorrow there. It's been eradicated. No more sorrow. One old preacher from the 1800s, J.C. Ryle, said, Our worldly goods are taken from us, and we have sorrow. We're encompassed with difficulties and troubles, and we have sorrow. Our friends forsake us and look coldly on us, and we have sorrow. Our hearts are frail and full of corruption, and that brings sorrow. We're persecuted and opposed for the gospel's sake, and that brings sorrow. Oh, what a sorrowing, grieving world we live in. Sorrow is eradicated. No more broken hearts. No more regrets of the past. No more sorrow. He says, no more crying. You say, well, that's a little redundant, because he also said he was going to wipe away every tear. But when you study out crying here, this is the shriek of anxiety. This is the crying aloud brought on by pain, grief, or anxiety, whether it's real or imagined, and it's over. No more cry of anguish, no more scream of anger, no more cry of the guilty person, the condemned individual doesn't exist. No more sobbing of the depressed, no more cry of the woman in labor, of the anguished 
captive inhabitant of an overthrown city, taken into slavery, no more. There's no more cause for any kind of crying whatsoever. It's completely gone. No more crying. He will wipe away every tear. There is no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, and no more pain. We go all the way back to Genesis again, to the curse. When Eve was promised that she would experience pain in childbirth. That Adam was promised that the earth would be cursed with thorns that he would fight against pain. One said this, ever since the garden, pain has become a passenger on every train and in every compartment of life. We can't outrun it. We cannot erase it. We cannot hide from it. We cannot shelter ourselves away from it. We cannot even be vaccinated against it. No more pain. Nobody likes pain. Nobody wants pain. You can go to any store. You will find pain relievers everywhere. When you are in pain, you will work to get away from pain. The older I get, the more I experience pain. I try to avoid it at all costs. Sometimes when I move, this is ridiculous. Even in the pulpit, I can do this, and I have pains here in a muscle. You say, there's no muscle there. Ah, ha, ha, ha. You know what it feels like, don't you? I know so many people who have had their knees that God gave them replaced with knees that science gave them. Hip replacements, shoulder surgeries, toothaches, headaches, spouse aches, <laughs> pastoral aches, toothaches, pain, no more pain, no more physical pain, not just physical pain, no more emotional pain, no more mental pain. There's so many people battle, no more pain means no more hospitals. There is not an emergency room because there is no emergency that exists in heaven. There isn't a fever. There isn't a cold. There isn't anything that we need to fear. No hospitals, no broken hearts, no hurt feelings, no shattered dreams, no missed opportunities, no damaged relationship, no more fearful anxiety. No more being stressed out. All stressors have been completely removed. This is the place that we are going and it's new. John writes in Revelation 21.4, For the former things are passed away. In effect, this was the old order of things. This was the old way of life. The old earth. The old world system. This is all gone forever. This is a new place. A new heaven, a new earth, and a new city. And only new creatures can get in. We need to develop a longing for home. A longing for a new home which awaits for us. A longing for our Father's home. In verses 10 and 11 of Revelation 21, John begins to help us understand a little bit about what the new city Jerusalem will look like. And in that, we gain some insight into what heaven will be like. This is our Father's home. This is our Father's house. And remember, it's not something way out there in the distance that we cannot comprehend or grasp. Jesus used it as something for the disciples to embrace for their troubled hearts. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm preparing it for you. What does it look like? Don't you want to know? John says this in verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me 
that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like, you'll hear John using those terms, it was similar to, it was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. I don't have time to build all of it up, and maybe we should do that study, but the new heaven and the new earth are created. The old heaven and the old earth are burned up with a fervent heat, and all that is in them, and all that is under the curse of sin is gone. And the new city, Jerusalem, comes descending down from heaven, from God, and John, as he stands on this great and high mountain, is looking at it as it is descending, and he's saying to us, it was like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and it was lit from the inside out, not by any lighting system that you can comprehend, but it was lit by the glory of God. It was reflecting and refracting light lit by the glory and holiness of God all around like a giant diamond that was coming. In verse 18, he says, And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. He's trying to help us see it. He's penning furiously what he is seeing. And the Holy Spirit's inspiring him. Not so that we get lost in the details and we get bogged down, but so we have something to hold on to as we navigate through this life. The city was pure gold like clear glass. We've never seen material like this before. To help us with a little of the imagery, John says, listen, it's lit by the glory of God like the shepherds would have seen. It's brilliant. It's lit internally. I'm having trouble explaining my father's house. He says it has a great wall in verse 12. A wall, great and high. And has 12 gates And at the gates, twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. In verse 14, he says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We're just getting a picture from John. This is actually what it looks like. This is a real place, an actual destination. It is for us. It is being prepared for us now. And John is saying, let me tell you what I saw. And what I saw is this. And he's beginning to paint this picture. He's telling us that all the way through eternity, we will be reminded beautifully of how we were redeemed Through the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, through the church, the names of the 12 apostles, we'll never get over the fact that we were redeemed. And then he begins to help us in verse 19 see it. The foundations of this city. He says, And the foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, a chalcedony. The fourth, an emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, a topaz. The tenth, a chrysoprasus. The eleventh, a jacinth. And the twelfth, an amethyst. When you say other than just a whole lot of words I cannot say, this has not helped my image of heaven whatsoever. A chrysoprasus. You want to put something in my lap for me to be comforted by, and then you tell me what adjacent this. 
You say, have you seen him, Pastor? Have you studied it out? I can tell you this. I know for certain a jasper, as John told us, is clear, crystal clear. A sapphire, deep blue stone. A chalcedony is a greenish blue color. An emerald, a deep green color. Sardonyx is a white stone with bands of brownish red streaking it. Sardius is a deep red gemstone. Chrysolite is gold colored. Beryl, teal blue. Topaz, golden greenish. Chrysoprasis, pale green. Jacinth is a pale violet. Amethyst is a rich purple. Foundation stones, I don't mean it's bejeweled like a Christmas ornament. I mean these are slabs of precious gemstone lit from the inside out by the brilliant, holy glory of God. How many of you enjoy this time of year cutting the lights in the house and sitting around your Christmas tree with just the lights on, just the Christmas lights? Mm -hmm. You just stare at it, right? Can you imagine how long you will stand and stare at the new Jerusalem? Can you even comprehend what it must look like? John is doing his best to help us. Our finite minds do their best to wrap around it. We try to grasp it. And even now as it is explained to us, painting it out verbally, we struggle to hold on to it as something that motivates us. He says to us in the 21st verse, there's 12 gates They were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold as if it were transparent glass. He's telling us what it's like around the city. He's laid out the foundations. He's told us about the wall great and high. And there are 12 gates and angels at the gates. And each gate is one pearl. And every time you pass through the gate to do the will and the glory of God, you will be reminded that you have no business being in this place. Save the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Moses took his shoes off. When he stood near a bush, you might require somebody to take shoes off when they come into your house. Can you imagine a brand new heaven and a brand new earth with a brand new holy city of Jerusalem that looks just like this and you come traipsing in with the earmarks of sin on you? Can't happen. That's why the Bible tells us that when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we become new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. The only way you get into the new heaven and the new earth and traverse the new Jerusalem is to be a new creature. Sins forgiven. Whenever I read scripture like this, I find it hard to communicate or articulate to people clearly. What I do know is that in the Old Testament psalm where we began, the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want for anything. And he begins to talk about largely the struggles of life. There are times where I need green pastures to feed on and I need to rest beside still waters and I need him to lead me on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I'm going to pass through the valley of the shadow of death, but I won't fear evil. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. There are enemies in the 23rd Psalm, but he prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. 
And as he ends, he begins to assess life as a whole and he says, I know there are struggles and I grasp that there are ups and downs, but goodness and mercy, his footmen, they follow me all the days of my life. And he wraps all of this psalm up by saying, and I live with the awareness that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is a psalm that is not meant for us to aspire to. It is something for us to hold on to here and now. And Jesus, with troubled disciples, said, Comfort yourself with this awareness. My Father's house is a real place. It's where I'm going. I'm preparing it for you. And live knowing if I go and prepare a place for you, certainly I will come and I will get you where you can be with me where I'm at. What is it like? It's brand new. He will wipe away every tear. There is no more death. There is no more sorrow. There is no more crying. There is no more pain there. And we've painted as clearly as we can some of the sights that we will take in. And I say to you, we are not motivated by heaven enough. We are so temporally minded that we miss out on much of the motivation. In the letter to the believers at Thessalonica, Paul said to them, I don't want you to be like those who have no hope. Comfort each other with these words. A day is coming, and it may be soon, where a trumpet will blast, and the voice of the Lord will go global. It will be so potent it can reach to the deepest part of the ocean. It can penetrate every grave that exists, and he will say, arise. And the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, with him in the air. And when that moment arrives, all of this that dominates us comes to an end. And we're with him forever in this place, heading to our father's house. Whenever you meditate on that, you realize you can do one more day, can't you? It's okay to do some things you don't want or you don't like to do because ultimately this is where we're heading. But if you're controlled by everything that you see and everything that you hear and everything that you feel, you will stop woefully short. But I say to you, run another mile, take another step, show up another week, do another rep, give another $10 million, whatever you feel led to do, 10 or 11, just give one more. Pray another time. Why? Because we're on our way to heaven. I circle all the way back to what Spurgeon said of that verse. May God grant us grace to dwell in the serene atmosphere of this most blessed psalm. And I say to you, may God grant us now, it's a prayer, isn't it? May God grant us now here in this moment to dwell in the serene atmosphere of this most blessed truth, that we will dwell, we will abide, we will continue in our Father's house forever. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. 
Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.